Sometimes I like to imagine the world after us, the strange mammals that will emerge, the abundance of biodiverse plant life taking over our fields and factories and so on. I don't think this world will be better. I maintain that we are the most interesting thing to happen on Earth, and there is real beauty and meaning in our curiosity and compassion, even as we also cause and witness so much suffering. But at any rate, there will be a world after us, after each of us. And that's why there's life insurance. It exists to provide a financial safety net to those who love and count on you. Policy Genius's technology makes it easy to compare life insurance quotes from America's top insurers in just a few clicks to find your lowest price. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $292 per year for $1 million of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. So save time and money and provide your family with a financial safety net using Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. Policy Genius. Because there will be a world without us. Welcome to... Is that how it starts? Yes. Dear Hank and John. Hello and welcome to Dear Hank and John. Or as I prefer to think of it, Dear John and Hank. It's a comedy podcast where me and my brother John answer your questions, give you dubious advice, and bring you all the week's news from both Mars and AFC Wimbledon. Uh, today... It, we're in real life. We're together. We There is no need uh, for you to pretend that we are in the same room because we are in fact in the same room right now in the great state of Florida. It occurs to me that they might not even be pretending. They might actually think that we are in the same room. And in some ways, maybe we are. We're just in some kind of third space that we visit on the phone. It is a other room. It yes. It is a, a room made of electrons. I'm fascinated by the spaces that we uh, make up or sort of like make physical. What was once called cyberspace mm-hmm. before it became... Um, so assumed that it uh, that we stopped thinking about it as space. Do you ever uh, have that experience where you will have a very intense interaction in a online space, and then later you will ascribe it to a physical place? No, that happens to me. Has happened to me several times. Really, where there are like big moments that I have happened in my life that were happened on the internet, but I feel like they happened, and I have I have put them in a physical space that I've been to before. So I think of them as occurring in that space. One of the only three times I ever vomited entirely from stress or fear or emotion was from a uh, cyberspace interaction. Like uh, with my my girlfriend at the time, we'd met on the internet and she, uh, how, how do we look? We look good. All right, good. Hank is looking at the levels right now. Um, my girlfriend and I uh, were sort of like in this middle of this long six-month breaking up process. And we just had a very tough conversation. And immediately after, I like... Uh, it was almost like hanging up back then. Because mm-hmm. going offline was an action in a way mm-hmm. that it isn't now. And I, uh, I just went to the, immediately went to the bathroom and threw up at our house back in Winter Park, Florida. Well, uh, that... It never has happened to me. I don't think I've ever puked from emotion. Really? Yeah. I've puked from emotion a few times. I've puked from reading once. Wow. Yeah. I've never puked from drinking either. I've also puked from drinking. 
Uh, I have puked for the other reasons. Just from illness. Illness. Yeah. And motion sickness. Oh, you know, it's been a long time since I puked from motion sickness. I remember it being a very unpleasant puke, it though. It is not good. It is not a good puke, John. All right. Should we, uh, should we, should we talk about Florida, or should we move on to uh, the poem of the well, day? Well, yeah, I feel like we should do the how are, how are you doing today, John. I'm doing well. Uh, I am in the midst of a somewhat crazy uh, few days for me. Yes. Um, I was just in New York talking to uh, Bill and Melinda Gates for the launch of their annual letter, which is fantastic. You can read it at gatesletter.com. Um, and no, they didn't pay me to say that. Uh, Bill and Melinda Gates, not <laughs> sponsors of this podcast. Um, They've got it. They've got the money They to could share. have sponsored it. They chose not to. <laughs> Believe it, they're spending their money in smarter ways. <laughs> um, and, uh, and then I'm here for uh, about a day. And then I'm going uh, on a trip to uh, visit some refugee camps. Uh, for the rest of the week, which will be very interesting. So you can actually talk about that now. But on my way... Oh, yeah. I'm going to stop off in London for seven hours and go to an AFC Wimbledon game. (sighs) Uh, Your life exhausts me. How are you doing, Hank? I'm good. I think I feel like I... uh, Just going to Florida for a vacation is just an awful lot for me. (laughs) <laughs> and you're like you're like the florida vacation is just like sort of a, a six-hour layover on your way to tunisia or something so we um we grew up here uh hank grew up here more than i did but we both kind of grew up here and uh every time i land in florida like when i'm flying over florida and the plane lands and then i get out into the airport and everything i always think and this is the stupidest thought but i have it every single time i land in florida there is no place on earth like florida more like florida like it's just the Florida. It's the Floridiest place in the world. It is very Florida-y. It's that so Florida. Sure. Well, especially the Gulf Coast. Yeah. Oh, everything's pastel. Oh my god. And there's all kinds of kitschy sculpture gardens, and there's this uh, there's there's whimsy. Oh, there's so much whimsy in seashells. If I had to uh, describe <laughs> the Gulf Coast in two words, it would be whimsy, comma seashells. Yeah, it's good. <laughs> <laughs> Not whimsy seashells. No, 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 because the seashells are very serious. <laughs> All right, let's move on to a poem. Okay. I wanted to read you this poem last week. It's, it was in a recent Vlogbrothers video. Have you read Octavia Butler? Yeah. Uh, have you read The Parable of the Sower? No. You've got to read that one. Okay. It's the best. I've gone on to now read like six Octavia Butler books in the last two weeks. But... Um, this one, was, this one was maybe my favorite. So it's uh, from Parable of the Sower, um, and it's a very short poem today. The shortest of the short poems. No, not the shortest we've ever done, but near. <laughs> In order to rise from its own ashes, a phoenix first must burn. It's good, right? Mm-hmm. Octavia Butler, man. One of America's great novelists, and one I hadn't even ever read until like six months ago. Mm. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Phoenix, burn. I never know what to say after poems. <laughs> just think about it in silence, everyone together. I just think it's, it's not even really a poem. It's just an observation. Um, it's just a fact about phoenixes. Uh, you know what uh, AFC Wimbledon's uh, badge is? Is it a phoenix? It is. That makes sense. It makes sense because yeah. they, had to, they, had to, they had to burn. Before yeah. they could rise from their own ashes. Absolutely. And, and I feel like just even, just because it's so, it's such a nice image and it's, a, it's good colors, that I would maybe want to wear an AFC Wimbledon scarf if it were cool out. Well, 
if that is the case, you can always go to dftva.com where AFC Wimbledon <laughs> scarves are for sale, and uh, and the uh, the proceeds from those scarves go to benefit AFC Wimbledon, a football club owned by its fans and arguably the greatest fourth tier English football club in the history of football, and maybe maybe soon. The greatest we'll third get there. Tier, the greatest let's third get the tier football football club. Let's All right, let's get, let's get there. Let's let's go to some questions from our All right. beloved listeners who emailed us at hankandjohn at gmail.com. Uh, Hank, can we start off with, with me asking a question? Sure. All right, this question comes from Miranda, who writes, Dear John and Hank, it wouldn't be Dear Hank and John without some talk about death. So with the recent passing of Justice Scalia, I realize I know nothing about how the Supreme Court selection <laughs> process works. Uh, don't worry, Miranda. Congress also knows nothing about it. Um, <laughs> why does it take so long to elect a new justice? Uh, they aren't elected. That's part of the reason. Why aren't their backups already lined up like a U.S. vice president has a vice president? That's a great question. Maybe they should have thought of that when they were making the Constitution. Why aren't there more specific guidelines in place as to who should select a replacement in an election year? Miranda, those are excellent questions. And they are all questions that I wish our founding... Parents, mostly fathers, had borne in mind when they were writing the United States Constitution. Here are some other things I wish they'd borne in mind. Uh, while we are discussing it, um, yeah. I wish they'd borne in mind that while we weren't going to be part of the United Kingdom anymore, their parliament is actually a pretty high-functioning organization. Um, and maybe we should have adopted a parliamentary system instead of adopting the absolutely bananas uh, congressional system that we currently have. Some of this is about the fact that the uh, Constitution is extremely vague about the Supreme Court. Um, it says that uh, Supreme Court justices will be chosen by the president with, uh, but with the advice and consent of the Senate. Uh, <laughs> That's all it says. Is that really what it says? Pretty much. Wow. Advice and consent. <laughs> and the Senate this year has interpreted that to mean, over the years that has meant different things. It used to be, before about like 1960, I think, it used to be that, that the president just chose the Supreme Court justices and then Congress said, uh, as you wish. Um, or, 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 yeah, I guess that's, I, I guess consent implies that they could say no somehow. It, 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 but they didn't actually figure out that they could say no until like 1960. Okay. Uh, one of the weirder things that happened in the U.S. Supreme Court is that when Franklin Delano Roosevelt was president, he wasn't pleased with what the Supreme Court uh, was doing and none of the Supreme Court justices were dying. So he just decided that the Supreme Court should have more justices and he appointed huh. a bunch of new people to the Supreme Court. It was called packing the court. Um, and that's how he got all of the New Deal legislation through. So That would be really fascinating if, uh, if we just kept doing that, because then there, there would be as many Supreme Court justices as there are Congress people. Or as many Supreme Court justices as there are, there are Americans. We could all be on the Supreme Court. Um, so, yeah. I, I, I want to back up for a second and just bet that we're going to get a lot of feedback from our British viewers about how their parliament does not function well. I mean, you can say that their parliament doesn't function well, but come on. I mean, well, we're comparing it to America's yeah, Congress. I mean, there's much... The, well, I think what the idea of the parliamentary system that is effective is that the, um, the party that has the most, uh, most seats in parliament is able, to elect, is able to choose its leader, and that person becomes the prime minister, rather mm -hmm. than potentially having a president and a Congress who profoundly, intensely hate each other and see there being a great deal right. of political hay to be made 
from hating each other. That's true. That's I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, and it does seem like it uh, does not work out super well because oftentimes uh, you get the you get the president from one party and then everybody pushes back and elects Congress from the other party. Now the alternate argument is that basically the, the the United States was set up to be a country in which it was extremely difficult to do anything. Yeah, and that it has been that. Um, and that it has often benefited from being that rather than, you know, right. uh, going populist in this direction or populist in that direction. Um, I mean, essentially, the U.S. revolution was this extremely conservative revolution in which <laughs> yeah. one yeah. group of rich, white, land-owning men um, exchanged yeah. control of the United States with a slightly different but largely identical group of rich, uh, white, land-owning men. Um and uh, I think a lot of both the, I think a lot of the problems of the United States since then were sort of sealed into the, into the cake, were sort of mm-hmm. baked in yeah. from the very beginning. Right. But also, you know, it's gone okay. The United States has been an incredibly successful country. And one of the reasons that our revolution was a successful revolution is because it was a reasonably conservative one versus like you look at the French Revolution, which was so radical that in the end it wasn't sustainable. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, they went from having uh, one one despot named Louis to one despot named Napoleon. Right. So back to the Supreme Court. Yeah. The president uh, gets to, to pick one. And the Congress gets to approve it post-Nixon. That's they get the to, idea. They get to advise and consent. Yeah, they, <laughs> uh, although in this case, they are refusing to advise. Um, and also pre-refusing to consent. And they are preemptively refusing to consent. I think the proper response to this, to be honest, what I would love to have happen is I would love to have uh, President Obama nominate a moderate Mm-hmm. moderate justice yes uh and then have congress approve it that is not going to happen for a variety of reasons congress is able to make is able to cite precedent for what they're doing the president is able to cite precedent for why this is crazy the truth is that we uh should have prepared an answer to this problem at some point in the last 230 years mm-hmm. and we really haven't now i think I'm, you know, everybody brings their own bias to this. I think, I I would like to think that even if the president were someone with whom I disagreed politically, that, you know, with 330 days left in office, that president should be allowed to appoint a Supreme Court justice. And I think I would think that regardless of my own political uh, opinions. But Mm -hmm. it's hard to know because because you can't see past your own biases. Yep. Uh, yeah. Well, fascinating. Here's American history. Uh, the Constitution is not perfect, and... Nor, in fact, is it very clear a lot of the time. Yeah. Uh, there, there are also a lot of things that we're glad we've changed. Uh, I've got another question, and everybody's glad we changed, about the Constitution. It's very weird to me when people think that the Constitution is some kind of, uh, you know, like the Founding Fathers were, were, uh, gods of some sort, and they've passed down this document that is perfect in every way. Anyway, I have another question, John, and probably it's time to move on since okay. that, that was a pretty long one and, and as usual, packed with comedy. Uh, this question <laughs> is from Lane, who uh, says, Dear Hank and John, I need help with hugs. Mm. As I've gotten older, I've started to hug more people outside of my family, yep. and I can't say that I'm very good at it. Yep. I love a good hug, 
but I don't always know how to go about giving one. Yep. My question is this, when you go to hug someone else, do your arms go above or under the person's arms, or does it go over one shoulder and uh, under the other arm? Does it change with different genders and different situations? I have no idea! Well, Hank is much more of a hugger than I am. Uh, in fact, I have lots of opinions on this. Yeah, and you, you'll recall that one time the President of the United States attempted to shake Hank's hand <laughs> and Hank said, no, sir, we are going to hug. Yeah. Well, he just hugged two other people. But he extended his hand to you and you were like, I'm coming in, Mr. President. Well, I figured, I, I thought that people would say uh, the president is a sexist if he hugged two women and then shook the hand of a, of a man. I'm inclined to agree. I thought you made the right call, but for sure. Yeah, and he's, in very, he's very fit, by the way. <laughs> um, uh, he, uh, so, yes, I, uh, there is no wrong way to hug. Uh, but it is like a handshake in that you kind of can tell things about people by their hugs. And, and I, I think that in general, uh, a hug should be firm and not uncomfortable. And where the arms end up going is, uh, is almost entirely up to circumstance. And that often has to do with height. If there's a great height differential, yeah. then you're, you're going to go around the middle and they're going to go over the top. Mm-hmm. And uh, that, that happens. And I, this doesn't happen to me very often because I'm, I'm fairly tall. But I have a friend who's like 6'8". And yeah. when I hug him, I, go, I, go, I don't try to get my hands up over one of his shoulders. Oh, I do. When I, I hug my best friend is six seven, and when I hug him, I go one hand over the shoulder. Even I, even as dumb as it looks, you can't even dumb, get it up there. It's not just that it looks dumb. I feel like I'm um, like at a middle school dance, <laughs> which was the last time that like my peers were so much taller than I was. Yeah, you know, yeah. And so you're, the boys who were always shorter than the girls back then were supposed to be. Right. We're, we're supposed to have our arms on their shoulders, and they're supposed to have their hands on our waist. And it just looked ludicrous. Yeah. Uh, and I feel like that every time I hug Chris, I think to myself, I'm just a, I'm a middle school boy at a dance again. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, and I will find myself going up on tiptoes when I'm hugging Adam and, uh, and trying to get one hand over his shoulder. But, uh, and I do feel a little bit odd, I will say, now that I'm thinking about it, when I give, when I give him a hug, because I feel kind of like a little girl. And I'm just like cuddling into his chest. Um, but I, uh, I think that it's mostly down to height, uh, where your arms end up. If you're roughly the same height, you do one over and then like, and you sort of like, you know, you, 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 the whole process of giving a hug, you have this wind up where you pull your arms out while you're still a fair distance away. Yeah. And that's the time when you're like using your weird monkey brain to figure out where my arms are going to end up. Yep. And if, you do that dance and your hands keep matching each other and then uh then you gotta like you just eventually you will get close enough and there will be enough of a difference that you'll end up in a hug and it will be okay yeah you know lane what i would say is that i always let the other person uh based on the way that they hold out their hands for the hug i let the other person dictate and maybe this means that i'm too passive or I'm never going to be successful in business or something. But I let the other person dictate the terms of the hug. Mm. Um, and then if I find <laughs> that they are like me and uh, not a hug term dictator, what I do in that situation is I just go right arm up, left arm down. Right. Just as mm, a, That's sort of the natural. That's my, in an emergency, this person also doesn't lead, <laughs> lead the hug. I'm going to go right arm up, left arm down. So that would be my recommendation. Uh, what do you think about uh, body contact in a hug? 
I'm not crazy about body contact in a hug. I think hugs are mostly for arms and collarbones. <laughs> I deeply disagree. I just I feel like I feel like your toes should touch, your knees should touch, your hips should touch, your no, chest should touch, no, your no, are all the way down. I like to min. I mean, if I'm hugging my wife, but like I, I or, or my kids or something, but no, I like to minimize touching. Yeah, just bodily contact. I do. I do. Just jetting. Can we move on to a question about Mars? Yeah, sure. I thought I could get you off the topic of hugs <laughs> by bringing up Mars. All right, Hank. This question's from Netta, who asks, "Dear John and Hank, a few podcasts ago, Hank said Martian winter." And that got me thinking, does all of Mars have winter at the same time? Or is it like Earth, where the northern and southern hemispheres have it at different times? Does Mars have hemispheres or an equator? I'd love to know what the seasons are like on Mars and if it depends on where you are. I love the podcast. It is the highlight of my week and I think absolutely hilarious. Netta, you do not have a very good sense of humor. Well, but we appreciate the sentiment anyways. Yeah, <laughs> Mars is just like Earth. It, it has an axial tilt like Earth's, mm-hmm. and thus it has uh, seasons like Earth. It has a winter in one hemisphere, and then while it's summer in the other hemisphere. And all planets have hemispheres. Um, the, the equator is defined by the spin of the planet. Uh, so where it's, it's the, you know, when, when a planet is spinning i'm doing hand gestures now so this is a this is a visual thing look on the internet you can see what a hemisphere is it's halfway down uh and the sphere yeah halfway down the sphere it's almost like it's the hemisphere (laughs) exactly yeah uh but there's not like for example uranus spins on its side (laughs) and uh and so it's it's its hemispheres are left and right uh not top and bottom uh, You're never going to say Uranus without me laughing at you ever. That's fine. We need to rename um, that planet. But there would be, uh, so there would be planets that, uh, there, there could be a planet that doesn't have winters like that, that would be perfectly 90 degrees with the plane of the solar system. Um, and I don't know if there are any planets like that. There probably are. But so I think Mercury's like that. Would you be better off, like, so you could you could do what you could do in the United States where you spend... You know, summer uh, in mm-hmm. New York, mm-hmm. and then you're like, "Oh, it's starting to get cold. I'm gonna go to Sydney, Australia, yeah. and enjoy more summer." Yeah, you could totally do that. Except that instead of summer, it would just be a little bit less frigid. <laughs> you, you might get up to like, you might get up. I mean, in addition to never being able to go outside because there's no air, mm-hmm. uh, you would, you would, uh, you know, you're never gonna get much up. You're not not going to give above freezing. I don't think ever on the surface of Mars. Really? Yeah. That sounds miserable. Well, uh, you know, I live in Montana where it doesn't get above freezing for quite a quite a hunk of the year. But but it does have air though. I just think air is such an important part of what makes Earth enjoyable. It is a big part of what makes Earth enjoyable. Do you want to know another part of what makes Earth enjoyable? This, I do. The question is from Gavin, who asks, Dear Hank and John, cows eat grass, yep. so why don't people? It's mm. cheap and easy to grow, so shouldn't everyone just eat grass? No. Grass, a thing that makes Earth great. No, they shouldn't eat grass, and I'll tell you why. So, humans need certain things. Protein, fiber, all things vitamins. Also, also in grass. Uh, it's a calorie inefficient uh, food uh, versus like uh, our agriculture staples like rice, potatoes. D- yes, it is. Uh, it does not have as much energy mm. uh, in mm. it. No, 
Okay. Alternately, it uh, there is a reason. There is a reason. What is the reason? Well, first, we're not cows. Well, I understand that we're not cows, but what is the reason? If it is energy as energy intensive and as digestible by it's the... It's not as digestible. So that's, oh. the, I mean, that's the thing. You, you have just as much energy in grass, which is why you can burn grass and there will be dry grass and there will be, uh, there will be energy released. Uh, basically, what's happening in our bodies is just a slow burn of all the things that we eat. But uh, there are certain things that our bodies are not metabolically set up to digest. And cellulose is one of those things, whereas in a cow's body, they can convert that cellulose, which is just made up of sugars, but sugars bonded together in a particular way. They can break that cellulose down into those sugars and then use those sugars the way that we would use sugar as fuel. We cannot do that, um, and, and we cannot do that because we don't have the same digestive system as a cow, and also because cows actually, I'm pretty sure, don't break down cellulose themselves. They do it with, uh, with bacteria in their guts, mm. and that's why they have like a bunch of different chambers, because they have this whole fermentation thing happening with a bunch of different bacterial colonies that are turning that cellulose into fuel for a cow. So each of a cow's four different stomachs has a different is colonized by different bacteria? I've, I bet I bet it is. Now, I, that is not a thing that I know for sure, but it seems very likely to me. Follow-up question. What percentage of a cow is actually bacteria? I, w- I would guess that uh, the number of, of cells yeah. of bacteria. There are more bacteria cells than cow cells in a cow. Really? I, I would just... Yeah, certainly. By weight... Again, by weight, it's going to be almost entirely cow, but by number of cells, because bacteria cells are much smaller than cow cells. But I don't think of myself, I don't think of myself, uh, when I think of what constitutes me, Mm -hmm. I do not think of the number of pounds that the cells I think of as me weigh. Mm -hmm. I think of this number of cells that are me. And that's closer, I think, to what I am than uh, than a number on a scale that could fluctuate wildly. So the thought that I am actually, and yes, you're going to see a lot of this in my new book, the thought that I am actually only half me is distressing. Well, here's the question. Are you even half you? What cells count as being you that's a great question right because if you cut off your uh you know your pinky finger you're still you you. even though you've lost this part of you uh Uh, so it's really it's mostly brain stuff it isn't but it isn't entirely brain stuff because i would argue that like if you had endocrine system stuff as well if, if you had a traumatic brain injury right now like your personality would be different you would be you would be different in right in important and central ways but i would still think of you as you right um and you would still be you right uh so the actual i mean this is it's just like fiendishly complicated mm-hmm. that's all i can say about yes, it yes yes absolutely probably, but i do i do on. sometimes feel like i just have a, all of these like sort of meat parts to to the me that are necessary to like hold on to stuff and move around well yeah but i will make remind weird you noises with my mouth i will remind you that your brain is also made of meat okay yeah. <laughs> here's a question from joanna who asks Dear John and Hank, my name is Joanna, I'm from Berlin, and I'm not a native English speaker and only 13 years old, so I apologize in advance for any grammatical mistakes that I'm going to make. You made none in that sentence. 
Here's my question, colon, that's appropriate. I've been a nerd fighter for two to three years now, and as the John bobblehead first came out, I was just a little kid and didn't even know you existed. So when the John and Hank bobblehead collection came out, I was really happy and bought them. This is the best email in terms no, of grammar yeah, yeah. I have ever read. <laughs> um... I really love them, but John fell down yesterday and unfortunately his head fell off. Sorry for your headaches, John. Uh, she even put the parentheses and the period in the right place. I don't have the money to buy another set, so do you have any idea how I could fix John? Thank you for your dubious advice and don't forget to be awesome. Best wishes. I mean, first off, never again apologize for your grammar, Joanna, <laughs> in English or in German, because that was phenomenal. That is, I can only hope that seven years from now, my son will be able to write in any language that well. Okay, so uh, first off, how to fix the, the, the head falling off of a bobblehead problem. Hank, we've talked about some big problems in this podcast. <laughs> um, whether you are you, uh, uh, whether um, there should be a Supreme Court justice over the next 330 days, or whether we should just leave that seat empty inexplicably for an entire freaking year. Um, sorry, that, was, that revealed some bias. Uh, We've talked about Martian hemispheres. We've never talked about anything as important as uh, how to reattach a bobblehead. Uh, which, may, all of that preamble makes me feel like you just have no idea, do you? you oh, just, I do know. Oh, okay. What do you, what's your thought? Okay, so you gotta, what you got to do, Joanna, is you got to glue the very top of my neck. Mm -hmm. You've got to put super glue on the top, not on the sides, on the top right. of the neck. Because that's how they do it in the first place. Mm -hmm. And then you put the head very carefully, back onto the neck. Um, and you should be able to retain a, a percentage, at least, of the bobble. Right. Uh, I would say close, but I, I'm going to suggest instead of superglue, which has no flex, it, mm -hmm. it dries extremely strong but, but hard, I would say something like rubber cement or caulk. Okay. So that you can get something that will be happy moving around a lot. Yeah. Alternately... Just get a new bobblehead set at DFTBA.com. <laughs> I don't suggest that. Definitely repair rather than replace when possible. Today's podcast <laughs> is brought to you by John and Hank Bobbleheads. Available now at DFTBA.com for the low, low price of just $35. Might be $40. <laughs> We're not sure. Something around there. Today's podcast is also brought to you by Franklin Delano Roosevelt's Supreme Court Justice Stacking. <laughs> Franklin Delano Roosevelt's Supreme Court Justice Stacking, responsible for the New Deal and possibly all of current American prosperity. <laughs> that's, that's, that's a bold, bold statement. <laughs> dubious. Very dubious. dubious. I mean, some American <laughs> prosperity, some percentage of American <laughs> prosperity might be able to be traced back to that. It's one of those things where if it had gone wrong, we would remember it oh, as yeah. like as like you know this power grab by the first president to be elected four times. He was essentially president for life. Yeah, it was kind of a power grab. Yeah. And today's podcast is also brought to you by Martian Summer. Summer Ooh. on Mars, still incredibly cold. And finally, this podcast is brought to you by cellulose. Mm. That component of grass that's made of sweet and tasty, wonderful sugar but is somehow yet still inaccessible to us because we are not sufficiently made of bacteria. So we all know there are things in life that you have to compromise on, but there are two things that you shouldn't compromise on. One is name brand Dr. Pepper. The off-brand stuff just doesn't hit the same. And another is, of course, your 
health. So don't go back to that one doctor who uses your appointment to catch up on the latest headlines or their family group chat or the crossword puzzles just because they're available right now or take your slightly sketchy insurance. Instead, check out ZocDoc, the place where you can find and book doctors who will make you feel comfortable, listen to you, and prioritize your health. And you can search by location, availability, and insurance. So literally, no compromises here because with ZocDoc, you've got more options than you know. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare highly rated in-network doctors near you and instantly book appointments with them online. You can filter specifically for ones who take your insurance, are located near you, and treat basically any condition you're searching for. And the typical wait time to see a doctor booked on ZocDoc is between 24 and 72 hours. So go to ZocDoc.com slash DearHank and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated doctor today. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C.com slash DearHank. ZocDoc.com slash Dear Hank. I got another question. This one is from Aileen, who asks, Dear Hank and John, I'm a listener from the French-speaking part of Belgium. Like most of my friends, though, I consume a lot more English-speaking media, be it books, TV shows, movies, YouTube videos, etc., than French-speaking ones. From my point of view here in Europe, it seems that especially in the internet era, culture from the English-speaking world, mostly the USA, automatically has a wider reach and is seen as cooler, more relevant, or simply better. This is making it more difficult for non-English-speaking creators to compete and reach an audience. I'm worried about what this means for diversity. While I love the American and other English-speaking media I consume, I still want to hear about other cultures, including my own. Uh, this is a great point. And I forget about it because obviously we do have a big, you know, you and I have a big audience overseas, especially in, in Europe, uh, in places where they don't speak English as a first language, but a lot of people speak English nonetheless. Yeah. And I well, feel like the number of people in Europe speaking English just continues to rise. Yeah, but I think it's a big problem um, for internet culture in general because, uh, because the internet feels so big and it feels so inclusive, a lot of times we forget that, that the vast majority of people uh, can't participate in online discourse, at least in the internet's lingua franca, which is currently English. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you're talk so when, when we talk about, you know, internet discourse, we're excluding people uh, who, who don't speak English, at least when we're talking about the kind of internet discourse that I engage in, I'm excluding people who don't speak English. I'm excluding people who don't have regular access mm -hmm. uh, to the same internet tools that I use, which most of which are dependent upon broadband. Um, and so you end up excluding most people. Yeah. Uh, as you feel like you feel like you're being inclusive, you feel like you're listening to voices that are you know systemically silenced, but in fact, like you're participating in a tool that is further the furthering the systemic silence of of mm -hmm. many voices, and in many cases, the most vulnerable voices. Not the French speaking part of Belgium. I'm thinking <laughs> you know more of uh, yeah. you know places where where uh, co poor countries communities where people don't have access to those tools. I think uh, the first thing that that I'm in favor of is uh, more content in more languages. Mm -hmm. uh, I spoke to, um, when I was in Davos, Switzerland, I spoke to a lot of internet entrepreneurs in sub-Saharan Africa, and the number one thing that they said was that, yes, we need internet connectivity. We also uh, need content. We need something to connect to. We don't have a ton of content. Yeah. And we don't have a ton of high-quality content. That's, I have a friend who has gone over to uh, several places in the developing world uh, to, and I, we actually, Nerdfighter community, 
a long time ago worked together to get some equipment for her uh, to bring over there so that they could like to, so that she could teach people how to make content mm-hmm. and that was sort of focused on photojournalism at first but then also documentary film and and like documentary film in sort of internet style which becomes just you know another kind of youtube video mm-hmm. and uh it was amazing to me both like sort of like what she was able to do in terms of teaching people who then taught other people and also how inexpensive it was for her to go do that i mean obviously like there's more than the the dollar cost like also it's just a difficult and uh time consuming thing to do to take like a piece of your you know your career away to go and and spend this time doing something that's obviously not going to make you a bunch of money um but it was fascinating to see uh now but i'm gonna and and like and i really am excited about hope hoping that more of that gets done and and that you know, there are a lot of people who have more experience creating for the internet, and hopefully, those people will share those tools uh, with the rest of the world. Now, it was really interesting to me in this question. Something I hadn't even thought about is that Aylin says it's cooler to watch English stuff, right? Uh, which is really interesting to me, like how that might get tied up. And but, like, I have noticed as I've been trying to watch the YouTube communities of other countries that a lot of places in Europe don't have that many native YouTube, uh, like interesting YouTube things happening. There are some, but not tons. Yeah. And, and that's, I think, par- partially because European culture and American culture are different, but much more similar than other cultures are across the world. Yeah. And, uh, and so like there's, there's probably a lot of connection that's pretty easy. And then there's also like you already see that this stuff is popular. Like you know that like people are liking this they have a ton of subscribers whether it's dan and phil or pewdiepie and you like of course it's like the easiest path is to go with the thing that's already popular there's also a culture built around those um those creators as well you know like Mm -hmm. there's fan art that you can have access to like and that makes you feel like you're a part of the thing yeah it makes and it makes the whole world more enjoyable it makes the fan community more enjoyable if you don't have to like build that stuff from scratch yeah i think there might be something special about watching somebody who's a little bit different from you in the same way that people like watching PewDiePie because like, like, you know, he's a really talented, funny guy who also has, you know, that extra spice of not being, uh, American. Right. This is a big issue in my other life in publishing, Mm -hmm. uh, because in the U S very, very little is published in translation. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, even less is read in translation. I mean, Americans are just woeful, at reading books uh, translated from other languages. Interesting. Except for the girl with the dragon tattoo. Um, <laughs> We're good at that one. Yeah, we did. We like we do in general. We actually do Scandinavian mystery novelists fairly well. Yeah. But everything else we're really bad. We at. also converted the Harry Potter novels into American English. That's true. We took the U the U out of color um, <laughs> and made it Sorcerer's Stone just to confuse everyone in the whole world. <laughs> I, I hear a lot from my readers in Europe that they. Um, that they want to read the books in English, that they like reading them in English because mm-hmm. they want to read them the way that um, I intended them to be read. But So my counter-argument to that is that um, it, if you don't think in English, you kind of can't read it in the way that I intended it to be read. Um, and in fact, like in some ways, th- that idea, the way I intended it to be read, is to me at least a flawed idea. Like I don't think that... Mm-hmm. Um, I, I wasn't thinking of, of it being read in an, in, in an intended or an unintended way exactly right. when I was writing it. I, and, and people always talk about how translation makes books worse. 
I would argue that lots of times translation makes books better too. Like it's just as possible that a translator can improve a novel as uh, as make one worse. And and I see that in my career. Like I see there are places where my translators are so good that my books are compared to books that are much much better than mine. <laughs> uh, like in Germany, especially, you know, a lot of times Sophie Zeitz is my translator there, and she's a brilliant translator and um and one you know and so my books there are compared to philip roth and jonathan franzen and you know, tony morrison and stuff and i'm just like what I mean, did you do yeah clearly like that's not me you know like clearly like sophie is doing something to my novels that's making them very very good and so i i think um i guess what i would encourage you to do is to find find content in your language and celebrate it Right. Um, you know, and interestingly, Canada actually has rules with national broadcasting that you have to include a certain amount of Canadian content. And that's not something mm, that you can do with the Internet. You yeah. can't force a certain amount of, of people to watch a certain amount of content from inside the country. Right. And the problem you run into is all of these European single language markets, uh, non-English markets, are going to be definitionally smaller than the English language market, which yeah. is huge because of America. Also because... Lots of people who don't speak English as a first language do speak English. Yeah. And so if you have a smaller market, it's harder to make money, and then it's harder to make a living, and it's harder to, you know, like to increase your production values. And so a lot of what, you know, it, it's just a much more difficult path for creators. And kind of what we need is people to like content specifically because it's less popular. And when people, whenever somebody like is sort of gives... Uh, that that sentiment a hard time for being like hipstery. I I'm like, well, how else is anything new ever going to get discovered? Because you have to like something that's different and new, and and there's something wonderful and freeing creatively about not having a huge audience that allows for interesting things to happen creatively. That we have to have an audience, a, a certain percentage of people who are always looking for something that isn't the mainstream, not just because it's, you know, not just because like it's not the mainstream, but also because more like creative, interesting creative things uh, happen more easily outside of the mainstream. Yeah, I totally agree. The last thing that I would say about this is um, I have a friend who calls this the Lithuanian poet problem, that if you are a Lithuanian poet, uh, your chances of winning a Nobel Prize, your chances of finding a wide audience are so infinitesimally small compared mm -hmm. to if you're writing in English or even in German or French um, that it's uh, it almost discourages you from ever starting uh, because and, it, and it's it, in, a, in a very small country or, or a relatively small language, it can be hard even if you find success to make a living because there just aren't that many potential uh, customers for your work. And uh, this is a kind of privilege that we almost never talk about, but it's, it's an intensely important kind of privilege. And like one of, I would argue like one of the most, uh, one of the most mm -hmm. important, uh, but, but it, because it's so important, uh, and because it's so omnipresent, it's easy not to look at like air, like it's easy to just feel like it's right. in the air, but it's not in the air. Writing in English is a massive structural advantage. Um, and, you know, being able to read in English is a massive structural advantage. And those are things that we have to be conscious of. Mm -hmm. All right, John, this is the part of the podcast where we talk about news, I oh, think. The news from AFC Wimbledon. Well, that and also the news from Mars. A cold, dead rock in the middle of space. Correct. <laughs>
Or maybe not dead. Maybe not. But probably dead. Probably well, dead. But, but, if it, but if it were alive, John. Yes. That would be, to be clear, yeah. the biggest news ever uh, in the history of humanity. No. That's not the news today, though. <laughs> <laughs> also, I would argue that it not, would not be the biggest news in the history of humanity. Really? Yes. In the history, you think that life on, that, that life, we are not alone in the universe? Yeah. Would not be the biggest news? No. What if it was, what if there was a, a person who was not a, a human on a Mars? A sentient yeah. person. Yeah. Like a Wookiee. Yeah, like a Wookiee. If Mars had Wookiees? Yeah. That were living in underground tunnels. Yes, that would be the biggest news in human history. Okay, just making Mars sure. Mars once had <laughs> bacteria yeah. that might have come from Earth. Well, we'll be able to figure that out. All right. If Mars has life separate from Earth that yeah. evolved separately from life on Earth, right? Would it be the biggest news in human history? I'm going to say hard no, but I'm going to say it would be in the top 200 news stories in human history. But I would also argue. That AFC Wimbledon's return to the Football League in 2011 was one of the top 200 news stories of all time. I mean, you can, that's, the, that's the thing about arguing. The printing press. You can literally argue anything. <laughs> <laughs> the Agricultural Revolution. Um, the Columbian Exchange. AFC Wimbledon's uh, victory over Luton Town in the 2011 uh, conference <laughs> playoff final. Is uh, it, You know, like... There, there are the problem is there are a bunch of big stories, right? Yeah. So it's hard to pick which is the biggest. <laughs> <laughs> All right, do your news. No, you do yours first. I have important news. <laughs> <laughs> the bad news is that I somehow, while walking up the stairs, <laughs> you lost the news from in, Mars into the internetless area of this house. <laughs> it's just, it's just popular mechanics asking me to submit my email address for something. Can you just go to no thanks? Uh, just hit the X. It worked. Oh, it worked. Wow. thank you, John. I'm so good at navigating the internet. You're really good at the internet. Uh, we've got a news story here. Yeah. NASA is investigating what's called photonic propulsion, mm-hmm. which could potentially send a spacecraft to Mars in as little as three days. And the current technology, we'd be looking at like a year, a year to get a there. little less, less than a year. Depends on the time of year you leave, mm-hmm. and depends on the, the route you take. Sure. Um, but uh, so, so big problem in space travel, as we always say, is you have to haul the fuel to move the fuel. To move the fuel, right? To move the fuel to get to Mars that you need to get to Mars, right? So uh, you're mostly pushing fuel around. The yeah. nice thing about photonic uh, propulsion is that you don't have to move the fuel around. You are you are shooting the fuel at the spacecraft, kind okay. of. Uh, by so so imagine you've got a hose, and uh, and and then at the uh, other end of the of the the driveway. You want to move some stuff off the driveway, some leaves. You spray the hose at the leaves, and the, all the leaves go woof, right off your driveway. And you're like, ah, good old clean driveway. The neighbors are going to be so envious. Mm-hmm. So it's like that, except instead of a hose of water, it's a hose of photons, a laser beam, that you point at a mirror, and the, the photons, which do not have mass, but do have energy and momentum, remarkably enough, can transfer that momentum onto a spacecraft, uh, from a, a centralized place where those photons are being generated by some extremely powerful laser. Mm-hmm. And then that laser will shoot at the, the reflectors on the spacecraft, which would have to be fairly light, at least to start, 
uh, and move it to extremely fast speeds with this extremely powerful laser. Now you gotta build a really powerful laser and you're probably not gonna be shooting it from the surface of Earth. There's a problem here, which is that the, the laser would evaporize some of the atmosphere, uh, <laughs> would, uh, would have a hard time getting out of the atmosphere. So you probably want the laser to be in space. Uh, but you wouldn't have to carry this fuel because the fuel is made of photons and photons do not have mass. Uh, so, but you wouldn't be carrying them with you. You'd actually be shooting the photons from a, a place, probably in orbit around Earth or on the moon. Uh, and, uh, and they've been doing research on this, and it is a, it, it's a system that works, that functions. They've done it in the lab, but what you have to... And, and NASA is uh, currently, you know, obviously thinking, worrying, try, trying to figure out how this would work. But you have, to, uh, you have to build a really massive laser, and probably you would be, uh, for this initial step, you'd be sending a fairly light thing, thing like maybe like a 200-pound or 100-kilogram uh, spacecraft mm. to Mars. But you could do it really fast, which would be amazing because the solar system is really big, uh, so big that you know Voyager 1 only just left the solar system after being launched in, in 1977. Uh, so if you want to get... And, and also because this is a good way of transferring energy and you don't need to haul your fuel along with you, this would be a uh, sort of the way if you wanted to send a probe to another star. Mmm. That's exciting. Yeah. But not as exciting <laughs> as ASC Wimbledon's heroic 1-0 victory against Carlisle United. Hank, you will remember... That uh, we were supposed to play Carlisle United a couple weeks ago. Right. But then that, Soggy pitch. That game was won by Waterlogged Pitch. <laughs> Waterlogged Pitch has had a great season in League Two. <laughs> They're in second. Um, <laughs> but uh, we beat uh, Carlisle United. And you'll remember in the game before that, we beat Barnet. And in the game before that, we beat Luton Town, the same team we beat in 2011. That means, I'm not good at math, Hank, but I believe that means that AFC Wimbledon has won three straight games. Is that unusual? It is unusual, yes. <laughs> is it unusual for everybody in the league? It is, is unusual it? to win three straight games. Um, here is the most exciting part of this. AFC Wimbledon are currently in fifth place in League Two with 15 games to go. Wow. So, uh, what, what are the, what, the top three don't have to compete at all? The top three automatically go to League One. Do they still play in the playoffs just for fun? No, they choose not to. They, <laughs> they, take, those, they take those days off. Okay. And then four, five, six, and seven enter into a playoff, and the winner of that playoff uh, goes up to League One. Oh, so wow. only one team from four, five, six, seven goes up to League One. But right now, AFC Wimbledon is in fifth, and, and crazily, they are not that far behind third. So I'm, I am officially dreaming, but I'm starting to think about dreaming of automatic promotion. But this has been an amazing, amazing run that Wimbledon have, have been on. They've had a great season the so whole season. So some other teams have had some bad games. We have, we have benefited from other teams having some bad games. But also, Wimbledon's just winning all of their games. And like if you win all your games, you go up. Like, and so I'm starting... Now, here's the crazy thing, Hank. I actually looked the other day. So the third tier in English football is called League One, helpfully. Um, and uh, I actually looked at the average attendance for all the teams currently mm -hmm. in League One. And they are all at least 3,000 more than AFC Wimbledon's stadium can contain. 
All of them? Yeah. Every team in the league one? The lowest one is 3,000 more than AFC Wimbledon Stadium can contain. The highest one is like 20,000 more. So you, got, you guys got to get that new stadium built. So obviously we have to get the new stadium built. But also it makes me think that uh, if we were to go up to League One somehow, that would be a wonderful season. <laughs> but it, I can't imagine how it would be sustainable but, I mean, maybe, who knows? I mean, you know, obviously no one thought that AFC Wimbledon would go from the ninth tier of amateur football um, and be promoted five times in nine years. So, who knows? Who knows? Who knows? I am starting to dream. It is incredibly fun. It's so exciting. The goal, by the way, was scored by 34-year-old Paul Robinson, a uh, journeyman center back uh, who was up for a free kick. I, I myself am only 38 years old, uh, meaning that uh, seeing Paul, that Paul Robinson scored that goal, I began to dream that perhaps in addition to sponsoring AFC Wimbledon, they might have a place for me on the club. You know what the great tragedy is, John? Huh. We're in this house yeah. uh, that our parents have rented, yeah. and it has an Xbox. Yeah. But you didn't bring FIFA. I, I had no idea that they would have... It has one of the like ancient Xboxes from way back in like, it 2008. It is an old Xbox. But uh, I could have brought at least FIFA 10 or something. Yeah. I could have just absolutely schooled you. Yeah. And, and uh, yeah, I, it would have been fun. Well... But instead, we'll just play that bad Mario Kart ripoff yeah, like, over and over again. Sonic the Hedgehog Mario Kart ripoff, that is... I don't like to criticize because I know um, that a lot of the developers for uh, Sonic the Hedgehog's racing game are big fans of Dear John and Hank. But uh, boy, it is not a great game. You guys you should have worked harder on that one. It feels like you might have phoned it in. It's a pretty obvious Mario Kart yeah, ripoff. It seems, it seems a little bit like you got, took every single thing that Mario Kart has and just did that. Yep. But maybe with a little bit more terrible, just, t- just terrifying worse. colors. Yeah, just worse in every way. Uh, My favorite thing in that game is that instead of green and red turtle shells, there are green and red boxing gloves. But they do the exact same thing, and yeah. the red one is heat-seeking, just yeah. like in Mario Kart, and yeah. the green one just shoots straight. Yeah, and it's bounces, a, just, like a, just like a shell. Yeah. It's beautiful. So uh, I am actually going uh, to AFC Wimbledon's game against Oxford United this weekend, which will be in the past when this video is uploaded. But I'm incredibly excited uh, because it's just AFC Wimbledon are suddenly, they're in fifth! So uh, we'll see. This is a huge game against Oxford United because Oxford United is third. Oxford is sitting there in that automatic promotion mm-hmm. spot. Uh, so if they win that game, the math, even with you know so many games left, like doesn't doesn't work in Wimbledon's favor. Right. If we win that game, I'm going to be properly dreaming. All right, that's exciting. We've got a couple of updates from the last time we had a podcast. Uh, many people, yeah, many people wrote yeah. in to say that. Uh, when we said that if you were bleeding out of any orifice, you should go see a doctor, yep. they wanted to remind us that, in fact, uh, about half of the people yep. have that happen regularly, and yep. it is a healthy, normal thing yep. to have happen. So yep. I apologize for being so dudes. We were blinded, uh, as we so often are, by... Um, the patriarchy. By the patriarchy. By our own experience. Mm-hmm. Yes. We also got a comment, uh, speaking of uh, places where we were blind, from social I- about social identity from Rachel, 
uh, who points out that when I said uh, in the Saved by the Bell question last week, you can't actually separate who you are from how people see you because identity is something that is hashed out in social spaces, that that may be true of ego identity, but that stereotypes about how people see you, uh, you know, obviously uh, that can be extremely uh, destructive. And she says, I think it is possible and positive to be able to separate who you are um, from the stereotypes that other people have about uh, you or your group. For example, all of the research about a phenomenon known as stereotype threat is basically about the benefits of separating yourself from how people see your group. So that's an important and interesting kind of correction comment. And we also had a bunch of, uh, we, we had two different people who wrote in about the phrase turn of the century. Yes. Uh, first, someone who is a linguist and has access to linguistic databases and was able to identify the first time turn of the century uh, appeared in print, and it was in the 1890s to refer to the turn of the uh, previous century from 1700 to 1800. Wow. And uh, it was only used like three or four times, though, in that entire century to, to refer to that. So obviously just a clever turn of phrase. Uh, and then in the 1920s, it became used much more frequently. 1921, I believe. <laughs> You're allowed to use it in 2021 and not until then. Uh, but uh, Jacob has suggested that since we do not have the opportunity to do this very often, yeah. we should, in fact, be using the phrase turn of the millennium. And there's no reason not to. We can. Why not do that in order to avoid confusion in this one century when we can? Yeah, we probably won't be around for the turn of the next millennium, so we should, we should enjoy <laughs> the phrase while it is available to us. Also, we got this uh, comment from Andrew. More of a question, but a very interesting one. Dear John and Hank, I dropped my four-sided banana in the sewer half a year ago, but fortunately managed to fish it out. It's been in my cupboard ever since, so it's several months past its expiry date. Part of it has been eaten by mold, but the rest is still intact, if a bit worse for wear. Is it safe to cut the banana up and put it in my cereal? Also, I collect water from stagnant pools around my neighborhood and use that instead of milk. Thanks, Andrew. Uh, that sounds wonderful. Delicious. <laughs> uh, you could have, I bet you could have, uh, you could have packed at least three or four more Dear Hank and John references in, in there. Uh, speaking of which, oh my God, it's burning! <laughs> All right, John, what are we doing today? Well, uh, Nothing. <laughs> This is not a. This was not. This was not a podcast where we learned anything. We learned that there is winter on Mars. Uh, we learned that that only recently did Congress decide that they that they, their the Constitution's request for their consent meant anything at all. <laughs> Which I did not. I honestly did not know, and I'm I'm fascinated I probably, to, hear, I, to, hear, I, I, to I, talk to you more about the Supreme Court. I probably uh, got I probably got the decade wrong, but it was sometime in the 20th century. There were a few things before that, but it was really only then that they got the uh, a real a real uh, I, I want to say bug in the britches, but I'm not sure that that's actually a phrase. <laughs> but I think it should be. Sure, they got a real bug in their britches about Supreme Court nominations. <laughs> um, is that a phrase? It sounds like it should be. I'd Google it, but the internet doesn't work up here. <laughs> What else did we learn today, Hank? Um, we learned that 13-year-olds in Germany have better grammar than the average American. And we learned uh, that John is not a, not a real not a real hugger. No, I mean I like hugging, but it just it should be most almost exclusively an arms event. Yes, we learned that John believes that hugs should be almost exclusively involving arms and potentially. In extreme intimate circumstances, collarbones. Yeah, I'm okay with collarbones. 
Thanks for listening to our podcast, which is edited by Nicholas Jenkins. Our intern is Claudia Morales. You can email us at hankandjohn at gmail.com or use the hashtag on Twitter, Facebook, wherever you hashtag Dear Hank and John. Uh, our theme music is from Gunnarola. And as they say in our hometown, don't, don't forget, forget to, to be, be awesome. awesome.